0: I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. My guest today is Alika reed Benta. As with each of our guests, we ask her to tell us about books from three times in her life. The book that had the biggest influence on her in childhood, the book that was most formative for her as a writer, and the books that were central to her most recent writing. And along the way, we'll be asking her about her own latest book, Frying Plantain. Zalika, welcome to Kobo. All
1: right, thanks for having me.
0: Frying Plantain is, depending on how you look at it, a collection of linked short stories or an episodic novel. And I know you get asked this question a lot, but I'm going to ask you anyway, how do you look at it?
1: You know, it's actually funny. You're the first person to like call an episodic novel. And I think that's definitely something that you like, you can look at it that way. I think just because of schooling and of marketing and everything, I've been trained to look at it as a short story collection. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I didn't really think of it as as a traditional novel either I I didn't want it to be that but uh yeah I I think I just looked at it as like a linked short story collection yeah
0: and that and that's something that when you present that to a publisher they kind of give you the well you you should know this is a a collection of linked short stories but you were fine with it you thought that was the way you wanted to go
1: yeah I mean there was definitely a lot of pushback isn't it a novel like don't you think you can make it into a novel and i i didn't really have an answer as to why i didn't want it to be a novel i i just thought instinctively this was the format i wanted to go with and so yeah i mean it was hard to be like well if you if if i make it a novel then i could probably have more offers but um no i just really stuck to my gut and 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 i was totally fine with it being a short story collection and luckily um you know, I found an agent and I found a publisher who was like, that's great. We love it this way. <laughs> Let's so, do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so either way, it's like a series of snapshots of a young woman, Cara, and her life growing up in Toronto. A child of Caribbean parents. She herself is born in Canada. Can you introduce us to her?
1: So uh, Cara, Cara Davis, as you said, she's uh, she's born in Canada. I think a characterization of her throughout the book and even how I see her is as soft. Um, But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that throughout the um, collection, we see the different definitions of what soft is. And so I just think that it means that she's very sensitive. She's very introspective. And uh, sometimes she has to be a mediator in situations that she doesn't want to be a mediator in. And I also think that she goes through, um, you know... I don't want to say an identity crisis. I just think that you know when you're a third culture kid, especially in a predominantly Caribbean Jamaican neighborhood, um, there's a certain level of love in my Canadian, my Jamaican. So uh, that's something that she and her friends definitely grapple with and go through.
0: And that's something that's being kind of tested and queried and yes. it's kind of poked at all the you know, all the way through. Yes, this is your first book published by the excellent House of Nancy Press. Tell us about how it came to be. The book? Yeah.
1: Wow. I always say that it started off in um, my grade 12 writer's craft class. Uh, I wrote this book called, or not this book. I wrote this short story called The Building Blocks, and it didn't make it into the collection, but it was sort of the, like, forerunner to the collection. It was just about um, the character now named Kara. She's in kindergarten, and this boy wants to force her to play, I forget, I actually forget what he wants to force her to play, but he wants to force her to play something. And she slaps him, so she gets sent home, and her grandmother, Nana, has to pick her up, and she goes through Eglinton West, and it's sort of like, that's how she's introduced, or that's how the reader is introduced to the neighborhood. So I wrote that in grade 12, and throughout university, I think I showed it to different people, and they really, really liked the story, and... um, uh, E.B. uh was a, uh, she's a writer and she was a teacher at um, or an instructor at the School of Continuing Studies, and she was just like this is where your heart lies like this is a story that I think you need to expand and so I thought about it and and then it kind of became um, I sort of wrote another story now called Frying Plant in, in the in the um, in the collection and that I like, kind of led to other stories and other stories and that's mm-hmm. sort of how it came about so yeah.
0: And I understand that when you were first sending the manuscript out, you were getting back kind of helpful suggestions that amounted to, great, if you could take all the Toronto bits out, yeah. <laughs> or this would be so good if you just kind of took the Jamaican-Canadian bits out. And, yeah, yeah. And, and so. Where was that coming from? What was that like?
1: Well, I did my MFA um, at Columbia in the States. So I think a very big part of it was the fact that I was in the U.S. Okay. And I was submitting things to the U.S. And I was actually submitting things to uh, the U.K. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, the the Americans just couldn't get the Toronto parts or they didn't think that it felt Canadian enough because they were like, yeah, like, where's the snow and where's the French and where's the toques and where... And I was like, there's various... Canadian experiences, and mm-hmm. eventually ended up writing Snow Day, and they were like, "This, this is what we were talking about," and I was like, "That, that's like one specific story."
0: Right? Were they trying to be helpful? Like, I'm sure we can find some parts of America that have Jamaicans in it. You could, you could set it there.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And I um, in the UK, yeah, they, uh, they just, they wanted to focus on like the relationships between the women, and I thought that it already did that. I was like, I mean, that's kind of what my collection is about but they thought that the uh sense of jamaican toronto-ness kind of took away from the main story to them which was the women i was like i don't see how that's possible when it's all connected right so i think it was just that's where it came from and 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 it was something that i kind of had to just fight against a lot i mean to be fair when i was also writing in canada a lot of people couldn't get through the potwa they were just kind of like you know i think that you should take it out and so it went through various i never took it out because i was very i really felt that uh that it had to be in there but throughout uh writing it i went through so many different renditions of how to write uh the mm-hmm. the potwa. like sometimes it was like pure 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 potwa. like i uh, linton quincy johnson is a is a uk poet and i was looking at his poetry to see how he would write certain things and and so i wrote it like that but people who were non-Jamaican could not understand it. So then I tweaked it and then it became like, it wasn't Jamaican enough for me. So yeah, I just went through various renditions.
0: The first story in this book had so much resonance for me. We have a saying in my house, do you want the truth or do you want a good story? And it's a running topic, especially, you know, we have kids growing up and that line between truth and fiction gets blurry sometimes. And so I found myself asking, are you telling the truth? Or is this a good story? And either one is okay. I just want to know. It's helpful to know. (laughs) The the first story in Frying Plantain is all about an outsider trying to become an insider Mm -hmm. and about the currency of stories, whether something is a lie or a good story. Why did you choose this as the best way to open the book?
1: Oh, wow, that's a really good question. I think because, as you said, it's about an insider, a- outsider trying to become an insider, and I think that was the perfect way to start off this collection, because a lot of it, as you um, we were talking about before, is about, like, um, you know... Posturing and, and trying to put on this uh, this sort of persona, which we also see in snow day and which we also kind of see in a before and after and and I thought that um it was a good way to show that this is something that Kara deals with since she's little and uh, we see it throughout throughout the collection. And I also thought it was a good way to show the dynamics um, between the neighborhood, between the predominantly white schools that she would have to go to, as well as between her mother and her grandmother and her family. I just thought that it was a great way to be like, these are the dynamics that you are going to read throughout, throughout the collection.
0: Truth and lies pop up throughout the book. The ones that we tell to be interesting, the ones we tell to keep out of trouble the ones that are told about us and follow us around, the ones that we tell to keep the peace. Was that a theme that you were working through or is that just part of life when someone's growing up?
1: I don't think it was a theme that I was working through. And the reason why I say that is because um, when I first wrote Frying Plantain at the time, it was called Plastic. I was very much about theme. Like, this is what the theme of the story is going to be, and everything's going to relate back to this theme. And um, at the time, my mentor was George Elliot Clark, who's fantastic. And he was like, you don't need to focus on theme that much because then it becomes an essay. It does not become a story. And so trust yourself that subconsciously these themes are going to come out. And I really took that to heart because it was true. I read it, and I was like, this does kind of read like an essay. It doesn't really read like a story and so I think I just wrote and throughout it it just became a theme that that kind of kept coming up so subconsciously I probably knew what I was doing but it wasn't something that I was like actively focusing on.
0: Tell me about your own relationship to stories growing up. Which were the books that brought you into fiction?
1: Well, uh, like I said, Annie John, Jamaica Kincaid, that was a very, very eye-opening book for me. I, I liked the way that Kincaid wrote. I liked the fluidity of her of her sentences. And, and um, I don't think I understood that at the time because I read it when I was really young, but when I read it again and again, I was like, yeah, I just, I really like this feel. Um, I feel represented. To a point, because it is about a girl in Antigua. It's not about an Antiguan descent girl in in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. I have to mention Harry Potter. (laughs) I love Harry Potter (laughs) so much. And that really brought me into fiction and this sense of world building and transporting your reader. And I always try to make my writing cinematic, even if it isn't like a fantastical sort of, you know, work. I want it to be like a, a movie in your head. Beloved. By Toni Morrison is also one that brought me into fiction. Even though when I first read it, I didn't understand it.
0: And I was going to ask, what do you get out of Beloved when you read it when you're really young? Because there's a lot going on <laughs> there, a and lot. you don't—you you, know, you wouldn't pull it all out.
1: Um, I think what I got from it was that even though I didn't know what the depth was, I felt a sense of depth when I read it. I felt a sense of character, even though I didn't quite understand what was happening in terms of plot. There was. You know, Toni Morrison has a very significant voice. She has a very prominent voice, and um, I think that she gives prominent voices to her characters. So it was something that stayed with me, and I didn't know why at the time. I don't didn't know why I compulsively went back to that book to try to understand it year after year, but it was just something that kind of like I guess you know a spiritual kind of connection to the work. And um, I mentioned this to you before, but movies and television had a very big um, impact on me. As a writer and as a kid, and so I remember watching now and then this movie that was made in like 1995 about these girls growing up, and I really liked that movie. I wasn't a teen yet, but I also watched a lot of preteen teen movies when I was a kid. I was just like, I want to do this, but in my own way, about people that I know, and that was mm-hmm. something that stayed with me um, since I was like, I think I was. Seven, the first time I, I watched uh, now and then.
0: But that was something you pulled forward too, as you were starting to more consciously become a writer. You yes. were looking at movies and, yeah, and TV absolutely. as well. Let's pause there for a moment. Is there still a stigma in writing programs about taking infor- uh, inspiration from TV and from film?
1: In my writing program, that was definitely a stigma. I'm not sure if that's changed. I'm not sure. I mean, it can op- it can vary from program to program but sure. it was it was definitely something in in my academic life where if i would say something like that i would just get the stern look from my instructors or this kind of really from from my cohort and I was like yeah I mean you guys talk about how I'm great at dialogue it's also because I watched a lot of movies and I watched a lot of tv and I know what good dialogue sounds like and I know what bad dialogue sounds like and I just get a sense of inspiration watching really good film and really good television I think it just it compels something in me to 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 do my my own form in a very good way
0: Snow Day, another of the the stories in the book, is an intense accounting of where you are with your friends. Um, you know, giving a good insult or taking one, who gets a boyfriend and who doesn't, whose hair can get wet in the snow. But then it quickly becomes about danger and fear and betrayal and how that can happen so suddenly, especially to young women. It was so well written and so <laughs> vivid when you're describing a scene like that, are you looking at it as a writer, you know, just from your own imagination or your own experience, or do you have like the women of your life, like looking over your proverbial <laughs> shoulder, you know, giving you extra work to do as you're writing a scene like that?
1: Hmm. I approached that scene as a writer, but I also approached it just as a woman myself. I don't think I felt like you know. A generation of women or or women i knew like looking over my shoulder but i was just thinking about as a woman in a situation what is dangerous um because many women have experienced situations that are are very dangerous and one thing that i came across is that a lot of the men that had read it um in my cohort especially didn't think that it was a very dangerous situation they were just like nothing's happened though like i don't I don't understand and the women in my class were just like nothing had to have happened there was the threat of something happening and he came in into this washroom without her knowledge and wouldn't let her leave and um, and I think I just wanted to connect to that I didn't want anything like I didn't I didn't want anything physical to happen because nothing that that's not what danger has to be and so I think I just wrote that scene and I wanted it to be subtle and I wanted it to be tasteful um, and I didn't want it to be like a shock and awe kind of thing because I think that would cheapen the moment so I think I just looked at it as like yeah there have been situations that I've been in um, with men who maybe they didn't think that it was a dangerous situation maybe they did but that's not really the point the point is that when you express danger and their reaction to that so I think I just wanted to to sort of navigate that.
0: This is also a book about mothers and daughters and the emotional trick-or-treat of what counts as praise, what causes a fight, how you navigate that. How would you describe Kara and her mother?
1: I would describe Kara and her mother as having a very complicated but loving relationship. I think that a lot of times with mothers and daughters, A lot of things can be lost in translation while at the same time there is just like this psychic kind of connection between them and I really wanted to explore that I wanted to explore the fact that maybe her mother does things that Kara doesn't quite understand but the mother knows that it's coming from a place of love but maybe to Kara that isn't a place of love and so I think no matter what no matter how difficult situations are how overbearing it always comes from a place of love Um, and so we return to that so fraught at times, funny at times, very intimate at times, and just, you know, very loving and just the great and not so great ways that that love can be expressed.
0: And then when you extend that out to Kara's mother and her grandmother, are there different issues that you're trying to unpack in that relationship or is it an extension of the same things?
1: I think it's both. I think it's an extension of the same things, but I think that there's also more of a generational divide between Kara's mother and her and her grandmother, because, um, you know, Kara's mother was born in Canada. It's the first one of them born in Canada. And I think that being in Canada causes cultural, like, fissures. So they have that extra thing to deal with, which I sort of wanted to get into when... Um, And the story drunk when the mother is like, you think I don't know, you think I don't know what you're doing. I I know what you're doing. Um, So I think that's an added layer to to their relationship.
0: One of the books that you talked about being influential to you was uh, written by Junot Diaz. Yes. Tell me a bit about your relationship with that book.
1: Well, at the time, I had a very... I loved Drown. Um, that's that's the book. I was introduced to it in a Caribbean Studies class um, when I was in, like, my third year. And it just spoke to me because it was about the diaspora. I mean, it was very male-centered, but it was still still about um, just you know navigating that experience and so I j- and I also just loved how sparse his wording was and um, and how he could convey so much through so little so I studied that book a lot I wrote out the stories to see when he hit certain points it became um, the the story that I wrote about to get into my MFA program so I was just inspired a lot by by a lot uh, by what he had written I have now taken a I mean I, I can't deny that there's a lot of influence from him in my, in my work. But yeah, I think, you know, just considering what has happened and what has come to light, it's something that I sort of just objectively understand as a very poignant and beautiful book, but I don't have the same relationship to it anymore because of, of all of the allegations that have come out. So I kind of just... You know, if it's brought up, I'll be like, "Yes, it's it's definitely a book that I that I that I uh, loved at the time."
0: And the the part that's interesting to me about that is we're in a time when public figures fall fast. Yes. And that setting aside their crimes or misdemeanors, they leave behind these works, and yeah. they leave behind the people who were touched and influenced yeah. by those works. So you kind of have this orphaned attachment yeah, to absolutely. you know to a work that means something to you. And now it's also surrounded by, like, a fair bit of emotional conflict on its own. For the books that you were reading while you were writing Frying Plantain, like the ones that you were kind of cracking open or that, you know, tried to stay away from because they 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 were a powerful part of it. Tell me about some of those.
1: So I generally try not to read while I write because part of it is I don't want to be influenced by the writing style again like i i didn't read tony morrison because i was like i don't want to write and suddenly people were like that's not you that's you're trying to be tony morrison and the same thing with diaz because like he has such a unique voice that they'd be like yeah you're, you're you're trying to be diaz right now but um i came across this book bastard out of carolina by dorothy allison and again it just spoke to me it was beautifully beautifully written and at the same time i didn't feel like it would i thought that it would inspire me but it wouldn't you know sort of frame or influence what i was doing and so i read it because i liked the way that she i liked her turns of phrase and despite being of like very different backgrounds I felt emotionally connected to it, and, and reading it, I was just kind of like, yeah, I I want to know how she does that, and I want to make sure that when I write, I can do something the way that she does it. Another book was um, Purple Hibiscus by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and she writes with, like, she, I think what really struck me about Purple Hibiscus is the sense of mood that she created, because the family in that book, you know, um, she talked about the silence like in the house and how like everything was very very quiet and I could feel that quietness and I could feel the tension in that quietness and and I also wanted to create a sense of mood so I think instead of like I didn't write out the passages like I would have done when I was um when I was younger but I think I just read it and kept in mind how she would do certain things and see how I could create mood with my words um, and and so basically with um, Dorothy Allison and with Jim Amanda it just became about being more conscious of, of how I write and so while I am writing I'm very instinctive I don't um, I kind of just go and, and then when I edit that's when you can think about like okay well maybe I could do my word choice like this and maybe I can switch this here and so I think that reading those books just helped me in the editing process
0: did you take a break after this book review Done a dive right into your next thing.
1: Okay, so funnily enough, after I finished my MFA, my uh, my thesis advisor told our entire class. He was like, "You're gonna be so sick of your books, and you're gonna want to be done. You're gonna try to send it out because you think you're finished, even though you're not. You're gonna have to write your books at least two more times." And he's like, "None of you are gonna believe me, and you're gonna try it anyway. Maybe some of you will get you know get published, and, and maybe some of you won't." So he was right. Um, I tried to send it out, and that's when I was going through, maybe you can make it a novel, maybe you can take it all of the Potwa, maybe you can take out the Jamaican Toronto-ness, and I was sick of it. So I just stopped trying, I stopped writing, and I had always wanted to write a fantasy novel since I was a child, so I just decided to start writing that. So for, like, maybe about a year or two, I was just trying to get the fantasy novel off the ground and um and I had E.B. Kasich again read what I had already and um she was just like yeah this is totally great but what what's going on with your short story collection so then I was like oh like you're still interested in that she was like yeah yeah I think it'd be really really great if you like you know added to it or, or edited it and so I took a break from my my, uh, novel to work on my collection. So I sort of worked on them simultaneously at some times. And um, so since I actually sort of started writing the YA novel a couple of years ago, I sort of just kind of dove right into that now.
0: Got it. Well, can't wait to see the next thing. (laughs) Uh, But in the meantime, uh, go out and read Frying Plantain by Zalika Reed benta published by House of Anansi. And available at www.kobo.com. Zalika, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. This is a passage from uh, Brandon and Sheila. And uh, Brandon and Sheila are these neighbors that fight all the time. And so this is Kara sort of describing that. Tonight, Brandon was arguing with Sheila. She hadn't been around for a while. The love Brandon had for Sheila was kind of scary. And the love she had for him was kind of psychotic. He kicked guests out of his apartment for touching her knee, threw what had to be lamps or vases or glass ashtrays across the room, sob, howl, then they'd screw. He'd kick her out after. She'd smash a window and break back in, threatened to mess up any new girlfriend he might find, scream that she loved him when he said he couldn't believe she slapped girls just for saying hi. The first time I saw her, the same night Brandon moved in, she looked quiet, subdued, short, blonde, a pink streak in her hair, white, like translucent white, like she had never been in daylight. I couldn't picture her hysterical with rage, but we heard it every night. Maybe Brandon just did that to her. Keeping track of Brandon's relationship with Sheila became a sort of game my mother and I were all too eager to play. We turned down our TV to hear their fights better and come up with all kinds of drama for them to scream at each other about. But tonight it was different. I didn't want to guess their crisis. I wanted to listen.
0: That's it for this episode of Kobo and Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com slash conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.